Chapter Fifteen of When Knighthood Was in Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When Knighthood Was in Flower, by Charles Major. Chapter Fifteen, To Make a Man of Her. So it was all arranged and I converted part of Mary's jewels into money. She said she was sorry now that she had not taken de Longueville's diamonds, as they would have added to her treasure. I, however, procured quite a large sum, to which I secretly added a goodly portion out of my own store. At Mary's request, I sent part to Bradhurst at Bristol, and retained the rest for Brandon to take with him. A favourable answer soon came from Bristol, giving the young nobleman a separate room in consideration of the large purse he had sent. The next step was to procure the gentleman's wardrobe for Mary. This was a little troublesome at first, for of course she could not be measured in the regular way. We managed to overcome this difficulty by having Jane take the measurements under instruction received from the tailor, which measurements, together with the cloth, I took to the fractional little man who did my work. He looked at the measurements with twinkling eyes and remarked, "'Sir Edwin, that be the curiousest-shaped man ever I see the measures of. Sure it would make a mighty handsome woman, or I know nothing of human dimensions.' "'Never you mind about dimensions. Make the garments as they are ordered, and keep your mouth shut, if you know what is to your interest. Do you hear?' He delivered himself of a laboured wink. "'I do hear.' and understand too, and my tongue is like the tongue of an obelisk. In due time I brought the suits to Mary, and they were soon adjusted to her liking. The days passed rapidly, till it was a matter of less than a fortnight until the royal hind would sail, and it really looked as if the adventure might turn out to our desire. Jane was in tribulation, and thought she ought to be taken along. This, you may be sure, was touching me very closely, and I began to wish the whole infernal mess at the bottom of the sea. If Jane went, his august majesty, King Henry the Eighth, would be without a master of the dance, just as sure as the stars twinkled in the firmament. It was, however, soon decided that Brandon would have his hands more than full to get off with one woman, and that two would surely spoil the plan. So Jane was to be left behind, full of tribulation and indignation, firmly convinced that she was being treated very badly. Although at first Jane was violently opposed to the scheme, she soon caught the contagious ardour of Mary's enthusiasm, and, knowing that her dear lady's every chance of happiness was staked upon the throw, grew more reconciled. To a person of Jane's age, this venture for love offers itself as the last and only cast, the cast for all, and in this particular case there was enough of romance to catch the fancy of any girl. Nothing was lacking to make it truly romantic. The exalted station of at least one of the lovers, the rough road of their true love, the elopement, and above all, the elopement to a new world, with a cosy hut nestling in fragrant shades, and glad with the notes of love from the throats of countless songbirds. What more could a romantic girl desire? So to my surprise, Jane became more than reconciled and her fever of anticipation and excitement grew apace with Mary's, as the time drew on. Mary's vanity was delighted with her elopement trousseau, for of course it was of the finest. 
not that the quality was better than her usual wear, but doublet and hose were so different on her. She paraded for an hour or so before Jane, and as she became accustomed to the new garb, and as the steel reflected a most beautiful image, she determined to show herself to Brandon and me. She said she wanted to become accustomed to being seen in her doublet and hose, and would begin with us. She thought if she could not bear our gaze, she would surely make a dismal failure on shipboard among so many strange men. There was some good reasoning in this, and it, together with her vanity, overruled her modesty, and prompted her to come to see us in her character of young nobleman. Jane made one of her mighty protests, so infinitely disproportionate in size to her little ladyship, but the self-willed princess would not listen to her, and was for coming alone if Jane would not come with her. Once having determined, as usual with her, she wasted no time about it, but throwing a long cloak over her shoulders, started for our rooms, with angry, weeping, protesting Jane at her heels. When I heard the knock, I was sure it was the girl's, for though Mary had promised Brandon she would not, under any circumstances, attempt another visit, I knew so well her utter inability to combat her desire, and her reckless disregard of danger where there was a motive sufficient to furnish the nerve tension, that I was sure she would come, or try to come again. I have spoken before about the quality of bravery. What is it, after all, and how can we analyze it? Women, we say, are cowardly. But I have seen a woman take a risk that the bravest man's nerve would turn on edge against. How is it? Can it be possible that they are braver than we? That our bravery is of the vaunting kind that telleth of itself? My answer, made up from a long life of observation, is, yes, given the motive, and women are the bravest creatures on earth, yet how foolishly timid they are at times. I admitted the girls, and when the door was shut, Mary unclasped the brooch at her throat, and the great cloak fell to her heels. Out she stepped, with a little laugh of delight, clothed in doublet, hose, and confusion, the prettiest picture mortal eyes ever rested on. Her hat, something on the broad, flat style, with a single white plume encircling the crown, was of purple velvet, trimmed in gold braid, and touched here and there with precious stones. Her doublet was of the same purple velvet as her hat trimmed in lace and gold braid. Her short trunks were of heavy black silk slashed by yellow satin, with hose of lavender silk, and her little shoes were of russet French leather. Quite a rainbow, you will say, but such a rainbow. Brandon and I were struck dumb with admiration, and could not keep from showing it. This disconcerted the girl, and increased her embarrassment until we could not tell which was the prettiest the garments, the girl, or the confusion. But this I know, the whole picture was as sweet and beautiful as the eyes of man could behold. Fine feathers will not make fine birds, and Mary's masculine attire could no more make her look like a man than harness can disguise the graces of a gazelle. Nothing could conceal her intense, exquisite womanhood. With our looks of astonishment and admiration, Mary's blushes deepened. What is the matter? "'Is anything wrong?' she asked. "'Nothing is wrong,' answered Brandon, smiling in spite of himself. "'Nothing on earth is wrong with you. You may be sure. You are perfect. That is for a woman. And one who thinks there is anything wrong about a perfect woman is hard to please. 
but if you flatter yourself that you in any way resemble a man, or that your dress in the faintest degree conceals your sex, you are mistaken. It makes it only more apparent. How can that be? asked Mary, in comical tribulation. Is not this a man's doublet and hose, and this hat? Is it not a man's hat? They are all for a man. Then why do I not look like one, I ask? Tell me what is wrong. Oh, I thought I looked just like a man. I thought the disguise was perfect. Well, returned Brandon, if you will permit me to say so, you are entirely too symmetrical and shapely ever to pass for a man. The flaming color was in her cheeks as Brandon went on. Your feet are too small, even for a boy's feet. I don't think you could be made to look like a man if you worked from now till doomsday. Brandon spoke in a troubled tone, for he was beginning to see in Mary's perfect and irrepressible womanhood an insurmountable difficulty right across his path. As to your feet, you might find larger shoes, or better still, jackboots. And as to your hose, you might wear longer trunks, but what to do about the doublet, I'm sure I do not know. Mary looked up, helpless and forlorn, and the hot face went into her bended elbow, as a realization of the situation seemed to dawn upon her. Oh, I wish I had not come, but I wanted to grow accustomed so that I could wear them before others. I believe I could bear it more easily with anyone else. I did not think of it in that way. And she snatched her cloak from where it had fallen on the floor, and threw it around her. What way, Mary? asked Brandon gently, and receiving no answer. But you will have to bear my looking at you all the time if you go with me. I don't believe I can do it. No, no, answered he, bravely attempting cheerfulness. We may as well give it up. I've had no hope from the first. I knew it could not be done, and it should not. I was both insane and criminal to think of permitting you to try it. Brandon's forced cheerfulness died out with his words, and he sank into a chair with his elbows on his knees and his face in his hands. Mary ran to him at once. There had been a little moment of faltering, but there was no real surrender in her. Dropping on her knee beside him, she said coaxingly, Don't give up. You are a man. You must not surrender and let me, a girl, prove the stronger. Shame upon you when I look up to you so much and expect you to help me to be brave. I will go. I will arrange myself in some way. Oh, why am I not different? I wish I were as straight as the Queen. And for that first time in her life she bewailed her beauty, because it stood between her and Brandon. She soon coaxed him out of his despondency and we began again to plan the matter in detail. The girl sat on Brandon's cloak, and he and I on the camp-stool and a box. Mary's time was well occupied in vain attempts to keep herself covered with the cloak, which seemed to have a right good will toward Brandon and me, but she kept track of our plans, which, in brief, were as follows. As to her costume, we would substitute long trunks and jack-boots for shoes and toes, and as to doublet, Mary laughed and blushingly said she had a plan which she would secretly impart to Jane, but would not tell us. She whispered it to Jane, who, as serious as the Lord Chancellor, gave judgment and thought it would do. We hoped so, but were full of doubts. This is all tame enough to write and read about, but I can tell you it was sufficiently exciting at the time. Three of us, at least, were playing with that comical old fellow, Death, and he gave the game interest and point to our heart's content. 
Through the thick time layers of all these years, I can still see the group as we sat there, haloed by a hazy cloud of tear mist. The figures rise before my eyes, so young and fair and rich in life, and yet so pathetic in their troubled earnestness, that a great flood of pity wells up in my heart for the poor young souls, so danger-bound and suffering, and withal so daring and so recklessly confident in the might and right of love, and the omnipotence of youth. Ah! Oh, if God had seen fit in his infinite wisdom to save just one treasure from the wreck of Eden, what a race of thankful hearts this earth would bear, had he saved us youth alone therewith to compensate us for every other ill. As to the elopement, it was determined that Brandon should leave London the following day for Bristol, and make all arrangements along the line. He would carry with him two bundles, his own and Mary's clothing, and leave them to be taken up when they should go a shipboard. Eight horses would be procured, four to be left as a relay at an inn between Barclay Castle and Bristol, and four to be kept at the rendezvous some two leagues the other side of Barclay, for the use of Brandon, Mary, and the two men from Bristol who were to act as an escort on the eventful night. There was one disagreeable little feature that we could not provide against, nor entirely eliminate. It was the fact that Jane and I should be suspected as accomplices before the fact of Mary's elopement, and, as you know, to assist in the abduction of a princess is treason, for which there is but one remedy. I thought I had a plan to keep ourselves safe if I could only stifle for the once Jane's troublesome and vigorous tendency to preach the truth to all people, upon all subjects, and at all times and places. She promised to tell the story I would drill into her, but I knew the truth would seep out in a thousand ways. She could no more hold it than a sieve can hold water. We were playing for great stakes, which, if I do say it, none but the bravest hearts, bold and daring as the truest knights of chivalry, would think of trying for. Nothing less than the running away with the first princess of the first blood royal of the world. Think of it. It appalls me even now. Discovery meant death to one of us, surely. Brandon, possibly to two others, Jane and me, certainly, if Jane's truthfulness should become unmanageable, as it was so apt to do. After we had settled everything we could think of, the girls took their leave, Mary slyly kissing Brandon at the door. I tried to induce Jane to follow her lady's example, but she was as cool and distant as the new moon. I saw Jane again that night and told her in plain terms what I thought of her treatment of me. I told her it was selfish and unkind to take advantage of my love for her and treat me so cruelly. I told her that if she had one drop of generous blood she would tell me of her love, if she had any, or let me know it in some way, and if she cared nothing for me, she was equally bound to be honest and tell me plainly, so that I should not waste my time and energy in a hopeless cause. I thought it rather clever in me to force her into a position where her refusal to tell me that she did not care for me would drive her to a half-avowal. Of course, I had little fear of the former, or perhaps I should not have been so anxious to precipitate the issue. She did not answer me directly, but said, From the way you looked at Mary today, I was led to think you cared little for any other girl's opinion. Ah, Mistress Jane, cried I joyfully, I have you at last. You are jealous. I give you to understand, sir, that your vanity has led you into a great mistake. 
as to your caring for me or your jealousy. Which? I asked seriously. Adroit, wasn't that? As to the jealousy, Edwin. There now. I think that is saying a good deal. Too much, she said pleadingly. But I got something more before she left. Even if it was against her will, something that made it almost impossible for me to hold my feet to the ground. Jane pouted, gave me a sharp little slap, and then ran away. But at the door she turned and threw back a rare smile that was priceless to me, for it told me she was not angry, and furthermore shed an illuminating ray upon a fact which I was blind not to have seen long before. That is, that Jane was one of those girls who must be captured, viet amis. Some women cannot be captured at all. They must give themselves. Of this class, preeminently, was Mary. Others again will meet you half-way, and kindly lend a helping hand, while some, like Jane, are always on the run, and are captured only by pursuit. They are usually well worth the trouble, though, and make docile captives. After that smile from the door, I felt that Jane was mine. All I had to do was to keep off outside enemies, charge upon her defences when the times were ripe, and accept nothing short of her own sweet self as ransom. The next day, Brandon paid his respects to the king and queen, made his adieus to his friends, and rode off alone to Bristol. You may be sure the king showed no signs of undue grief at his departure. End of chapter 15